But it's great to be together again, and we're just going through the series on Philippians. So if you have your Bibles with you, love you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Last week, actually, James did touch on these verses, but I'm actually going to, uh, he's given me permission to kind of go for the whole thing today. Um, and we're going to read from verse 12, okay? This is what it says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my absence, but much more in my, not only my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. There are three parts to this uh, message. So far today, I've only got through just two, and I'm determined tonight that we should land it, at least land it, in the third part if we possibly can. You know, two different types of preaching. You may may not be aware of this. There's what we call thematic preaching and exegetical preaching. And thematic preaching is where you get a theme, say, for example, faith, and different people preach week after week on different aspects of faith. It's the theme of faith that we can apply to our lives. Then there's exegetical preaching, which is when you go through verse by verse by verse. And so um, we're going to do that in Philippians. And it's important to the church that we do this. It's important that there are times when we get a book of the Bible and we work through verse by verse. Do you know why? Number one, because the preacher doesn't get away with anything. He has to preach what the verse says. We all have our favourite bits of scripture and the scriptures that we don't really understand and we try to avoid them. Exegetical preaching doesn't afford you that luxury. And so as we go week by week, we're working through verse by verse. That's what this is. The other advantage is you get to go away from here tonight and look at the same verses and see whether you agree. And see whether, you know what, I really do think that that's what this says. So that's what we're doing this evening. And what I'm going to do is uh, go through just some of these verses, verse by verse. So I'm going to start off by doing something totally unexegetical and out of bounds, which is I'm going to go to verse 13 first and then go back to verse 12. And the reason for that is you can't get into verse 12 unless you understand verse 13. Three phases. Here's the first phase phrase I want to look at. Verse 13, look what it says. It is God who works in you. Now that is um, an amazing statement. It goes on to talk about, and God works in you for his good pleasure. In other words, he's delighted when he sees his work in you. It gives him joy. It's also good for you. And his, his plans are being fulfilled and he's shaping your life. But we can't get away from this fact that it says, for it is God who works in you. And it's present tense, which means it's not that God once worked in you. He is now, today, working in your life. If you are a Christian here tonight, whether you are aware of it or not, God is, even as you're sitting listening to me, God is working in your life. And if you're someone here tonight that's not yet a Christian, can I just say to you, when you do become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, it just opens the door for this God to come and work in your life. It's one of the 
One of the reasons to become a Christian is that, as we heard in our worship, God's no longer distant, but he's someone who is very close to us. So it wasn't, it was, Jay, it was Tim talking about that, wasn't it, when he was doing his mini-preach before the worship started. Now, so it is God who's at work in you. I mean, this is the God of the universe. The God of the universe is so, so loves you and he's so involved with you that he wants to do a work in your life. And right now, the work is on the inside. We don't actually see what he's doing very much. We might get glimpses of it. We might eventually see what God has done. But presently, God is doing a work in you which is under the radar. It's not obviously seen by people. You see, only God can change us. And he does that from the inside out, not from the outside in. Everyone's besotted with the outside. There's a verse in the Bible where God says um, that the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man, what's on the inside, the real you, the real important you, is being renewed day by day. The outside is temporal, the internal is permanent. It's everlasting. How many of you agree, I'll show your hands, that you agree that the outer man the outward is wasting away. Would you like to put your hand up? This is really dangerous in a younger crowd. It's true though. And if you think you're sitting there thinking, I'm too young to waste away, it's coming. One day it's coming. The outer man's wasting away. The inner is being with you. God's not that interested in the outer, but very, very interested in working on you on the inside. There's so much change that's being promoted around today that's purely cosmetic. It costs money. There's lots of therapies to help you to become a better person. But it doesn't do the only thing that God can do and that he is the only person in the universe that can change you at the very root of who you are. Everything else is on the surface. It doesn't last. The aging process cannot be stopped. The trying harder and turning over a new leaf and sitting on a mat and crossing your legs and going, "Mm," all day isn't really going to do it in the end. Kind of might help a little bit, but even that doesn't change you at the very root of your being. The gospel tells us that God comes and changes us and does a work on in the inside. And it begins with salvation. When you become a Christian, the work of God begins. A miracle takes place. The ability to change begins because God has put a seed in you That is an everlasting, the Bible calls it imperishable, and everything about you perishes, everything. But in you now, because you're a child of God, there is an imperishable seed. And that's the miracle of where the work of God begins. Where did it begin? The day you became born again. How many of you were raised in church? Put your hands up. If your parents were Christians and you were raised in church, about mm, quite a lot of you, 70%. The fact that you are born again is an amazing miracle. Because your parents were Christians, you were raised in church, you know that that didn't cause the imperishable seed to come into your life. And so I often say to kids raised in church, you've got to understand that if you're born again, it's an absolute miracle. It is as much a miracle as the person who's never heard of God, far from him, and has a dramatic conversion. Every single person has a work of God in them is a living miracle of God's mercy and grace. You were dead and now you are alive. 
But you see, God loves you and he's determined that the work he's begun, he doesn't just save you and put a seed in you and then back off. So this verse says, for God is at work, continuous, present, continuous in your life. He began a good work, the Bible says, and he will bring it to completion. That which he began, he is committed to continuing. So take this seed, for example. He's not content just to put the seed in. He digs it around. He waters it. He helps it to grow. It produces fruit in the end. And so when I see a passage like God is at work within you, it thrills me to think that this God of the universe is so committed to me, he didn't just start to work, he's still doing the work. And what is that work, I hear you cry, that he is doing in our hearts? Well, we were saved from sin. I think the work that God's doing in our lives is now to save us from everything else. To save us from ourselves and our egos. To save us from our past. To save us from all the baggage that we brought into the kingdom of God. To save us from wrong thinking and make it right. You see, the grace of God is wonderful to understand it, but it's more than a doctrine. It's meant to permeate every part of our lives. The Bible calls it sanctification, which means to become holy or to become more and more like Jesus. That's the work that he's doing. And it's from one degree of glory, the Bible says, to another. And sometimes you can have traumatic encounters with God that seem to change you instantly. But for a lot of us, and for a lot of the time, most of our experience is this, that the change is gradual. It doesn't happen much in meetings, by the way. It happens a lot in life. Because God uses the circumstances of life to shape us and mould us, to change us to be more like him. And so you tonight are a work in progress. I don't know whether that thrills you or not, but it, it thrills me to know that you're a work in progress because I don't think you're the finished result. And it would please to know I really am a work in progress. So what, what is the evidence of God being at work in you? Because surely in the end, although it's on the inside, it will start to be manifest and evident outwardly. Well, I think it's things like Freedom. And so God does a work on the inside. On the outside, you don't look very free particularly. But the purpose of God working you is to utterly set you free from everything that causes you to be in captivity to anything that's happened in your life. I think it's about love. I think that seed is sown in your heart is the seed of love. But I believe God's will is, as he works on you, is that you become a person so flooded with love and compassion that <clears throat> changes your relationships with people <clears throat> and those people beyond the kingdom of God. It's the work of the Spirit, by the way. It's not something that you can manufacture. It's not something you can grit your teeth and work hard at. So it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that God's power is at work strengthening you in your what? Inner man. The power of God isn't just about signs and wonders and miracles. It's about on the inside. It's about God changing you, giving you power and strength within you as he changes your life. Let me move it forward. I think the change that God wants to bring into our lives on the inside are things like character. Character is so very important for everyone who's a child of God <clears throat> that he changes our character. And so a lot of the work that God is doing is a character change. If he's going to use me for his glory, there are things in me that need to be changed. Here's another one, attitudes. 
just changing the attitudes that we have for one another. In my early parenting days of four kids, a lot of the attention was, 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 was on issues. Don't do this, do that. And if you do this, and I've told you not to, there'll be consequences. Uh, we just had three of our grandkids living with us this weekend. And yesterday, Liz said to one of our grandkids, I, I told you not to do this. And he replied, oops, I've got two granddaughters and one, now we know he is, one grandson. And he replied, why? That's not a good thing to say back to someone like Liz, <laughs> who's been a parent for many, many years. And of course, her reply was simple, because I said so. That's what you learn with obedience. It's because someone told you to do something, you then did it willfully, I told you not to do it. But then you realise after a while, when kids get to the age of about 10, 9, 10, it's not so much about the issues, it's more about attitudes. It's more about the way they respond or don't respond than the attitudes that they have to all that's going on around them. So I discovered this when kids were getting 9 or 10, and I thought, this 9-year-old is whining all the time. This is really bad attitudes on display. Attitude, I don't want to. Do we have to walk up this hill? And I realized that the attitudes that was coming need to be really dealt with because if they're like it at 10, what are they going to be like when they're 14? Let's deal with it now before we get there. God's a bit like with us, with his kids like this. He, he often points out issues that you repent of and get sorted. And maybe we keep doing that through our lives, probably. But he's also interested in your motives and your attitudes and your character. He wants to help sort out things that need to be sorted that no one else can sort out. Do you remember Joseph? Great, great man of God, but he started as a 17-year-old. I don't know if there's anyone here that's 17 tonight. There might be. And um, <clears throat> the 17-year-old bursts on the scene, and he gives a prophetic dream to his brothers. And he says, you're all going to bow down to me. Oh, mum and dad, you're going to bow down as well. Now, I don't know how he said it, but that's all we're told. Now, all prophecy in Scripture needs to be weighed. So the brothers weighed this prophecy. And they said, no way is this God. We'll kill you. He doesn't get killed. He gets sold into slavery. He then gets into prison and eventually comes out the other side. And the prophecy that he had as a 17-year-old then gets fulfilled all these years later. His brothers literally come, if you know the story, and they kind of bow down before him. But there's no cockiness there anymore. There's no, I told you so. He is full of forgiveness, full of hurt that's, that God has changed him, full of compassion for them. He quickly gets them to stand up. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God always meant it for good. I mean, the guy who was 17 and said this, and the guy who's through prison and slavery and come out the other side is almost unrecognizable. The word was right, but the character wasn't. The attitudes and the motives were not good. I think a lot of us are going through things where God's working on us to that end. What else is God doing when it says, I, God is doing a work within you? Well, for example, if you're an anxious person, his desire and plan is to help you get out of anxiety. His goal is that you'll be flooded with peace. And I know many people who when they became Christians were full of anxiety. And for some it's a long journey. But to this day they're now flooded with peace. Or maybe it's fear. God's desire to work in you is to, is to rid you of that fear. The Bible says very simply, um, 
Perfect love casts out fear. And I don't see how you can have love and fear in the same person at the same time. And so he's working you to rob you of that fear by replacing it with his love. It's true of our thinking. We need our thinking changed. Many of us don't think right. That's the work of God within you. For many of us, it's overcoming our past, overcoming our emotional difficulties, mental health issues. God is able to heal you of those. Habits, addictions, abuse, brokenness. He's able to heal you. I heard just this week of a lady who's been in this church now for a few months who's had the most horrendous background. I mean, stuff you wouldn't even believe. Abuse of an enormous scale. And got to the place this last week where she was able to say, I forgive these people who have done so much wrong to me. That's the work of God. You can't do that in your own strength. You need God with you to help you to make that become a reality. Well, you might be sitting here tonight saying, well, I don't feel like much is happening. Or if it is, it's sure taken an awful long time. And it's not very obvious and I feel very frustrated. Now, here's good news on the basis of this verse. God is at work in you. Sometimes he takes his time for a reason. Sometimes the good news is this. He's very tender and he's not impatient. And not only is he the potter and we are the clay, but also the Bible says he's the vine dresser and we're the branches. And in order to produce more fruit, he has to prune the branches. If someone's going to prune my life, I want to know whose hands the secretary is in. And then to discover it's in the hands of your heavenly father. And the fact that he cannot harm you or cause you evil is just wonderful. You can abandon him, yourself to him, and say, Father, come and work on me. Come and work in me and come and change me. And however painful it might be, the good news is he's absolutely committed. I mean, I've seen some changes in my life and then things that haven't been changed. And then I give up. I go, oh, it's a waste of time. I, just, I thought I was changing, but it's hopeless. I'm not. I give up. God never is like that. You know, uh, Mastermind, I don't know if you ever watch it. It's a bit geeky really, isn't it? There's little catchphrases in Mastermind, and one of them is, I've started, so I'll finish. I think that's written over a whole load of our lives. It's like God said, I've started, and I'm not going to give up. I've started, and I'll finish the work that I have begun. So number one, God is at work within you. Number two, in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you can't understand that without, first of all, knowing God is at work within you, so therefore work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a funny little phrase, isn't there, um, where Paul says to them, Beloved, as you have also obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. That's weird. We're exegetically preaching, so we've got to kind of look, what's that about? It's kind of, for me, it's kind of like when Paul rocks up, everyone's on good behavior. And when he's not around, they all kind of, you know, misbehave and get away with things. And Paul's saying, you're not doing this before me. You're not doing it to impress me. So whether I'm with you, behave well, do well, but even more when I'm away from you. It's a bit like Jane Silly's gone a six, a three month, six months? Th- oh, let it be. A three month, <laughs> he's gone on a three month sabbatical. 
And it's cut a load of us saying, James isn't around for three months. Come on, guys, let's party. Come on, let's just get out of here. We're just going to misbehave. I mean, it's just be very weird. It's kind of, guys gone on sabbatical. How wonderful if he comes back and finds that everyone's actually moved on in God. We're not here to impress him. We're letting God do his work amongst us. It's gone away for three months. I, I just found that video just a little bit disarming and spooky. <laughs> it's kind of like he's there. He's back again. I was watching his eyes. They looked like they were penetrating mine. And it's kind of, maybe he's still around. Maybe there are cameras that he's put up around to see how we're getting on. It's very strange. Kind of like, go away. Go on your sabbatical. And then there's this statement. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean salvation by works. Lots of Christians get confused about this. What I believe it means is very simple. Cooperate with God. God is at work in you, doing a work in you. So, therefore, you've got a part to play. And it's interesting that he uses the phrase with fear and trembling. What is that about? Well, I think he's just saying, take it really seriously. Work out your salvation, because if you don't, there are consequences. And the consequences are obvious. If it's just all up to God and you don't do anything, then basically you become passive. And you drift throughout your life, just doing what you want to do. But, but, you know, or maybe a bit like this. I find some Christians like this, they're, they're just waiting for God. It's kind of like God has started to work now. They're waiting again, quite passively, waiting, waiting, waiting. And God is saying to you, now you work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. There's something that you have to play your part as well as God plays his. Phil Moore, great theologian and friend who wrote an excellent commentary on Philippians. And on this verse he says this, we do not need to work for our salvation, but we do need to work out our salvation. It's something that you do. It's something that's important for you to do. It's God's will. So let me give you very quickly some examples of what I think are the sort of things that we are meant to do. And incidentally, you are the one that's got to do them. I can't do them for you. You can't do them for me. Your best friend can't do them for you. If you're married, your husband or wife can't do them for you. The person who's discipling you can't even do it. In a very weird way, even God's not going to do it for you. It's something that we must agree to work out. So this is about cooperation with this God who's at work within me. Number one, I appropriate all that God has for me on a daily basis. You see, the Bible says God has resources but unless you learn how to appropriate those resources into your life, they just stand there looking at you. So it's so important for me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling that part of it is to appropriate all that God's done. So the Bible says if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. That is a massive statement. You are now placed into Christ, which means you're placed into his love, into his authority, his resources, his riches, everything that he has for you. But it becomes passive unless you avail or appropriate what it means to be in Christ into your life on a day-by-day basis. Promises, there's a good example as well. Many, many promises made over our lives. But they just hang in the air until faith operates. And when I believe the promises, then they become 
a reality. I appropriate what God has promised to give me. Is this okay? Does it make sense? Take the cross, for example. I mean, the cross is an amazing historical fact where Jesus died for us and our sins could be forgiven and eradicated as well, as far as the East is from the West. And then it says that, that, that this Jesus who died, who bled for us, gave us the access into the presence of a holy God. And it goes on and on to talk about all these wonderful results of Jesus dying on the cross. But this work of the cross <clears throat> is not meant to be marveled at. It's not meant to be just looked at at a distance. The cross is meant to have effects upon our lives. And I can appropriate what Jesus did on the cross in a tangible way into my life. So the lady I illustrated about earlier is classic. She's looking at the cross and seeing that Jesus has forgiven her. Let's appropriate some of the cross right now. I can forgive you. The work of the cross is amazing, but it's not to be marveled at. It's to be embraced and it's to be received. I think when I look at the cross, I see the biggest act of a man and God going through a process of complete denial of selfish ambition. Philippians 2 talks, and you, we've heard it just recently, about the man who didn't grasp equality with God, but emptied himself. So much that happens in our lives that's not fair. I tell you, the greatest act of what's not fair is right there. So every time you say it's not fair, you appropriate what Jesus did on the cross and it changes your life. Jesus said to his early disciples in, John, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it's an amazing statement. That's not someone marveling at the cross. That's someone who says, every day I will die to my ego and my self-centeredness. This is what it means to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. Try this for size. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I mean, talk about identification and appropriation right there. It's not some distant thing that happened in the past. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live by faith in the Son of God, in the flesh, who loved me and gave himself for me. How does he do it? By every day saying, I will not live for myself. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Do you? Do you wake up in the morning and just think, before this go day gets going, I know myself, I know my motives, I know self-centered I am, I ego, I die today. Christian life is not about a decision made once five years ago, but a daily appropriation of what Jesus has done for you. Number two, another example of working out our salvation is this. I choose to abide in Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15 um, and verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. I mean, this is just, this is powerful stuff. Being a Christian doesn't make you fruitful. Being a Christian who chooses to abide in the vine it is what makes you fruitful. So how is this working out my salvation of fear and trembling? It's basically on a daily basis, I go something like this. Today, I choose not to be independent. I choose dependency upon Jesus, the vine. I can't produce fruit, he can. It's this life sap coming through me. And every day you choose to depend, to depend, to depend. I do this and... There's a little hint there. Jesus says, oh, by the way, just before we go on, apart from me, you can't do anything. That's a motivation. So I depend upon him because I need him in my life. The word if is there. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. If you work out your salvation of fear and trembling, I will come and give my life, my life, the power of my life to you. We make choices. Number three. I work out my salvation by asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. You can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. He's been given to you so you can live in him and through him. Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift that God has put within you. Come on, he's not giving you a spirit of fear but of love and power and self-control. But you notice he's saying to, to Timothy, you do it. Fan into flame. I can say to you today on the basis of God's word, be filled with the Spirit. You say, well, I'm just waiting for God. No, come on, be filled. Walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. All of this is not God imposing something upon you, but you willingly choosing that this could happen and should happen in your life. There's a sermon in every illustration point I'm giving. Number four, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling because I choose to pray often. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, do not be anxious. We're going to look at this verse in a few weeks' time. Do not be anxious. But it doesn't stay like that. It says, but let your requests be known to God. Pray with all prayer and supplication. In other words, I don't want to be anxious. Then it's something that you do. And don't stay in a pool of anxiety. Begin to pray. Begin to pray. That's you working out your salvation. And more you pray, what does it say in the next verse? And he will flood you with peace that the world cannot give to you. He responds to the one who's working these things out. Number five, I live by the word of God. It's something that I choose to do. We are constantly fed in our minds, in our society, our secular society. It drip feeds into us all the time telling us things that we should believe, often contrary to what God's word says, constantly drip-feeding into our minds, modern philosophies, ways of thinking, morality. And it's kind of like it clutters up your mind in the end. And unless you've got something else in your mind that can, can kind of push these thoughts away, then I fear that they're going to flood you. And I believe that one of the reasons that many Christians in this nation are struggling is if they're really honest, they are not putting in some of the effort that's needed. It's not much effort, but some of the effort just to get to live by the word of God. Can you 
Do you do that? Because there'll be repercussions if you don't. The Evangelical Alliance last year did a survey across all evangelical churches in this country and asked people in their 20s and 30s, how many of you regularly spend time reading the Word of God? The answer was 20%. That means 80% of 20, 30-year-olds in this country hardly ever read the Word of God. And you think, well, that's legalistic to read the Word of God. No, 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 it's not. If you don't absorb God's Word into your life, it will undoubtedly have repercussions that will be negative. So there's this wonderful appeal. Come on. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Live by the Word of God. Feed on it. Go to it. If you find it difficult to understand, ask someone else. Get some good, helpful things. It's there. I mean, these days, you just get your phones in your ears. Not your phone, but, you know, headphones. It's been a long day. Just press a button, and then you've got the Word of God that's there, just feeding you all the time. Why not? Simon, I'm sure when you were riding along, you were often listening, weren't you? You don't have to say you were, but sure you were. It's the word of God, of course, why not? Because it's just feeding, feeding, feeding you all the time. I want to really encourage you to do that. And then we also work out our salvation by an unusual thing, becoming totally engaged in the body of Christ. You say, well, how's that got to do with working out my salvation? Surely that's got nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with it. The body of Christ, the church, the local church, is where you choose to get involved. It's the soil where you begin to grow as a Christian. You will never grow into maturity independently from the local church. It's that key. So if you choose to stay on the edge, as sadly many Christians do, they're frightened of commitment, and just visit a couple of times every now and then, you are not working out your salvation. You can't work it out on your own as an individual. You're surrounded by a family. There's a reason for that. And so my appeal to you is to not stay on the edge, but throw yourself into it. Get involved. And you'll do that with fear and trembling because you know what people are like. Oh no, I've got to get to you. That's part of the risk. But the reality is it's how you begin to be discipled and matured and grow in the purposes of God. And number three, <laughs> it's taken me all day and I've still got five minutes left. This is free for all of you in the six o'clock meeting. The final phrase is this, verse 14 to 16. It says, shine as lights in the world. This little word comes from a Greek word called phosta, and that means luminary. So it could be lights in the world, it could be stars that shine in the sky, anything that shines, lightning that we had last night, even the sun. God is describing you and me as a possibility to have God at work in us as he is, working out my own salvation with fear and trembling as we've described. And the result of all of that is that you start to shine. There's a contrast. You are different Lights do two things. They expose darkness and they show the way. And as Christians, we have been left in this world as God works in us and we work out our salvation so that we can be lights to people around us. Darkness will be exposed. The way that people should live will be revealed. And it happens because we are different 
and that we are a contrast. The Bible even describes the church as a city upon a hill that cannot be hidden. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. It's all what God says about his people. And isn't it interesting, this phrase? I don't know what you think about this, but it says, we will shine like lights in a crooked and twisted generation. Do you think our generation today is crooked and twisted? Well, it certainly isn't straight and upright. Something's gone, it seems, dramatically wrong. We're surrounded by lost people, by broken people, by confused people, by distorted people, by people who used to think they knew what right was, but now they don't know anymore. And what is right is wrong, and wrong is right. It's crooked and it's twisted. And I've, one thing I've learned, and we're coming to a close, you can't change that by shouting at it. You can't, you know, Christians often tut at things that are not right. That's really terrible. You hear what they're doing now? Do you see what they're Tut, tut, tut. You know, it's kind of like, come round to my house on Wednesday night. We'll all tut together. And we'll have a good old tut, the state of our nation. Doesn't change anything. What does change is individuals who choose to live life with God at work within them. Who choose to live life which is a contrast and costly because we stand out. How are we going to do this? The verses give you the answer. Number one, do it all without grumbling and disputing. It's this funny phrase. Think of all the things he could have said. What's going to make you stand out? Stop grumbling. How are you doing? I don't think I'm... I grumble. The older you get, the more grumpy you become. I grumble. I'm always picking myself up. Lord, please do a work in me so that I stop grumbling. I think if you stop grumbling, you're going to stand out. Stop disputing. It's tragic. I've been involved in some churches recently where there's a lot of dispute going on. It won't let you shine like a light. In a world that's full of dispute, to see the church is disputing as well. I'm praying those days will come to an end. Are we going to blend in or are we going to be different? Here's another one. Be blameless and innocent. It's an amazing phrase. If you're blameless in our crooked and twisted generation and innocent, in other words, the way you live and even the way you speak will actually be a contrast to those around you. And of course, this is all not that we become weird and separated, but we become attractive and magnetic. Here's another phrase it uses. Children of God without blemish. So Billy Graham died earlier this year, and he wasn't perfect. But they've really, they really struggled to find dirt on him his whole life. And to be without blemish is an amazing thing. You just can't point the finger. Just can't find the thing. And so the guy died and went to heaven. But one of the great attributes he had is when the press were there, they, they worked hard, but they couldn't find the dirt because there wasn't any. And so he was blameless, innocent, a child of God without blemish. Oh, that many of us would be like this. And finally, hold fast to the word of life. And you know what that means in a world which is fast removing itself from the word of life. You don't compromise. You just stay firm on what you believe and how you practice. Shall we stand together?
wow, this is an amazing book, Philippians. Just get through three or four verses. There's so much that God says to us. And I want to encourage you, while we're going through this series, take some time out. Read through Philippians. Listen to it on your headphones. Get the word of God into you. Father, I want to thank you this evening for every person here that has taken that step of faith and become a child of God. That we will go out of here tonight really confident that you, God, are doing a work within us. In fact, I thank you now. Whether we know it or not, you are working in every person that's here. And I pray for anybody here tonight who maybe is not a Christian looking in. I want to really pray, Lord, that they will make this step of faith. They come to know the God who loves them so much. He's committed to changing them for his glory. I pray for us, Lord, that we will learn how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Deliver us from being passive. Deliver us from just drifting through life. Arrest us, Lord, tonight. Take us on a new journey whereby we're laying hold and appropriating all that you've given to us. And I pray the result of all of this is that we increasingly will shine like lights in a crooked and twisted generation because we want to see this generation straighten up right again. And a thought that you can use ordinary people like us, one person at a time, to change society. We pray, Lord, do it and do it for your glory. Amen.